Ladies and gentlemen, a formal welcome to the Jewish course of why. And when you ask why, of course, my response will always be why not. So I want to welcome Eileen. Welcome, Eileen. It's good to see you. And who is with you? Hold on, I can't hear you. Adrian. Adrian. Oh, Adrian. Good to see you. Welcome, welcome. Good to see you guys. Um, Steve, welcome. It's good to see you. Thank you. Wait, hold on. How many Steves do we have? No, just the one Steve. Okay, hey, Steve. Um, Adina Malka, it's good to see you. Jerry, it's good to see you. I hope you have your, um, the, uh, the rim shot ready. Okay, good, because you never know when a bad joke is coming your way. Um, Donna, welcome. It is great to see you. Vlad, welcome, welcome. Vlad, where are you joining us from here, from local Atlanta? Or, yeah. I'm from Atlanta. Welcome, welcome. It's great to see you. Mariana, from the, the Holy Land of Chile. Welcome, welcome. South America representing. I love it. It's great to see you. Great to have you here. David, it's good to have you here. Stan, welcome. Catherine, it's been a little while. It's good to see you. Hey, Catherine. Deborah, it is good to see you. And who are you with? Tell me your name, please. Deborah, Deborah Payne, tell me who. Oh, I thought you said somebody else. Al, this is Alan Truesdale. Hey, Alan, nice to meet you. Rabbi Ari, it's great to meet you. Jeffrey, welcome, welcome. It's good to see you. Charna, welcome. Uh, Joy, welcome. Uh, actually, we have, it looks like a few Joys, maybe Joy. Oh, I think I saw Elizabeth on, or maybe one of the devices. So welcome, Elizabeth. Welcome, Joy. Welcome, Lisa. Welcome, Ray. Welcome, Stephanie. It is wonderful to have you all on. What I'm going to do right now, I wanted to leave everybody unmuted or up to your own discretion, but right now I'm going to mute everybody. Um, although this is a conversation and a dialogue, we have to keep kind of the background noise uh, kind of quieted and muted somewhat. If, at any point, though, please jump in. So let me paint the picture of this course. I get asked lots of questions all the time. Um, and it's not just me. It's, you know, we all ask questions. We all have lots of questions to ask, especially, I think, when it comes to Judaism, there's a lot to ask. That's the bottom line. There's a lot to ask about Judaism. So this is, over the next six weeks, this is a platform to ask and explore all the questions. There's one, there are two criteria for the questions we're going to explore. Number one, it has to be related to Jews and Judaism. Okay, that's one. That's one. So if you ask me about the stock market or about uh, Beirut, I'm going to say let's stick with, uh, with the Jewish topic. So that's number one. Number two, the second criteria for the questions is that they begin with the word why. I, I know what you're thinking. Why? Because that's the course, the Jewish course of why. So no what questions, no how questions, no where questions. You have to get creative and ask it in the form of a why. So that's, that's the, uh, those are the ground rules. Now, when it comes to questions, Jews love questions. Um, you know, they, there's a story about a fellow that comes to one of these high-powered attorneys, and he says, how much for your services? And the attorney says, $200 for three questions. The fellow says, wow, isn't that a lot of money? The attorney says, yes. And what's your third question? 
Jerry, come on. I'm just saying, you got to be ready for the, uh, for the rim shot there. Okay, you got, you'll catch it next time. You'll catch it on the next time. So we, we, we love asking questions. You know, in Judaism, we don't charge per question. We actually encourage questions. Questions is how we grow. Questions, um, the, the, the process of asking questions is a point of growth and a way to learn. So in this course, we have scripted, pre-scripted 50 of the top questions that people ask about Judaism, uh, ranging from questions about biblical literacy, in other words, questions about the Bible, about the stories of the Bible, ranging to questions about Jewish custom, tradition, practice, ranging to questions about Jewish culture. We're even going to ask the question, why are there so many Jews in Hollywood? And we're going to have a good answer for it, by the way. It's not tonight, but it's in one of the classes. So this is the opportunity to explore the questions. In addition to the 50 questions that I have on my end, I encourage you to ask more questions. I think probably the most um, efficient way to do this is put it in the chat. You can um, message me privately or you can post it publicly. Make sure the question begins with a why. It's kind of like, um, what's that show, Jeopardy, where you have to answer in the form of a question. Well, here we have a, a tighter regulation. You have to ask the question in the form of a why question. Um, ask away. We may cover it already in one of the other classes or we'll, we'll, we'll make sure to get it in as part of our after class discussion. Okay, so it's, this is meant to be a fun, interactive course. At any point in time, hit the chat with questions, unmute yourself and ask, you know, and, and we'll all be able to hear you. This is meant to be a dialogue and a conversation and it's meant to be fun and fast paced. Okay, so let's begin. Make sense so far? We're all on the same page? Yes? Great. All right. Um, okay, we're going to begin. I'm going to begin with the first question. Oh, Jeff did not get the reading material. Okay, I am going to message you privately. Did anybody else not get the file that I sent? It could be that you, Charna. Okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to I'm going to drop it. I didn't get it either. Not a problem. I'm going to drop it in the chat. If you if you um, if you look in the chat, find it in the chat. If you can't access the file in the chat, don't worry. I'm going to share my screen. Sharing. Can you send it as an email? I can't send it now. Not in the middle of the class. Um, I can I can send it. Email me after the class, and we can work on that. But right now, it's in the chat. You can easily download it from the from the chat box. Open it up and save it. Um, otherwise, I'm going to share my screen. So either way, if you're looking at the screen, you can't miss the text. But before we get there, I want to ask the first question. First question we're going to address is a question on the premise of this course, which is. This is all about asking why and asking questions on Judaism. I think many of us have an impression sometimes, and maybe it comes from, you know, past experience, that Judaism is more of a, this is the way it is type thing. You know, this is, these are practices, these are traditions. You're going to ask why, okay, <laughs> why? It's, it's, it's what we do, it's Judaism. So is there really a place to ask why? That's the first question. And so what I'd like to do is, immediately debunk the myth. We're also going to, I should have mentioned before, there's a lot of myths and misconceptions about Judaism that we're going to debunk. And, and here we have our first opportunity. The myth of um, you can't ask questions or it's just because, that's the way it is. That's, there's no such thing in Judaism. There's always the encouragement 
to, to ask the question. So I'm going to share my screen with you. We're going to go through some text. We're going to explore this together. Okay. Um, if you have it, you can open it up yourself. However you'd like to do it, feel free to jump right in. Uh, let's take a look at text number one from Maimonides. The way we're going to do this is, in some classes I ask people to read, but we have so many texts, I feel like it's going to get a little bit hectic and chaotic. I'm going to read, but again, the goal is here to have a dialogue. I will be asking questions to, uh, to make sure that we, we, we all can hear each other. Okay, okay, so question one, again, is why are we asking why? So take a look at what Rambam, Maimonides, one of the greatest Jewish scholars of all time, famous astronomer, physician, scholar, Jewish legal authority, take a look at what he writes. Although all of the super-rational laws in the Torah are decrees, in other words, they are they're divinely mandated, as I have explained elsewhere, it is appropriate to meditate upon them and wherever possible provide a rationale. Indeed, the sages said, that King Solomon understood many of the rationales for all the super-rational statutes of the Torah. What Maimonides says right here is that even the commandments of Torah that seem to be super-rational, and let me define that term, seem to be things that defy logic or have no rational explanation, those two we are meant to pursue intellectually. We are meant to ponder and to think about them and to provide some sort of rationale for it. God, essentially, what we're saying here is that God does not want robots. God does not want blind, obedient robots. Yes, here's the caveat, yes, there is value in life to the notion of surrender, to the notion of letting go and embracing something greater than oneself. However, at the same time, Maimonides writes, this is, Straight up, Mishneh Torah, the, his book of a 14-volume book of law that's unparalleled in Jewish history, including all of the laws of the Torah. So Maimonides clearly writes in text number one that even when it comes to those commandments that call on us on some level to surrender, we're still encouraged to think about them and to find a rationale. Why? Because essentially we're meant to be completely invested in what we're doing. You see, if we don't know why we're doing something, a mitzvah, right? So that you have a certain Jewish ritual or obligation, and we do it. Why? Not because we understand it, but because that's what's asked of us to do. So although there's value in that surrender and kind of letting go and, and just being there and embracing something beyond us, there is value in that also. But what's missing is our mind, and what's missing is our heart. We might not be able to get so excited about something that we kind of have to shut off our brain when we do. So therefore, we're encouraged to ask the question and we're encouraged to ask the question and we're encouraged to pursue it intellectually. The truth is, this is very much a, a part of the fabric of the Jewish experience and the Jewish, the Jewish experience, and especially Jewish education. When it comes to children, for example, we're meant to encourage them to ask questions. Um, parents, yeah, maybe sometimes you, you have to turn to a child and say, you got to do it just because I said so. But more often than not, we're meant to, to explain things to our children so that they 
understand the value of what it is that we're asking them to do or teaching them to do. It's when you understand something, then it becomes integrated with you. The greatest example of this, one of the greatest pedagogical models that we have in Judaism is the Passover Seder. And what happens toward the beginning of the Passover Seder? Unmute yourself if you can tell me what's the classic pedagogical formula that happens at the Passover Seder. Help me out here. Four questions. The four questions, right? We have the child who asks, why is this night different than all other nights? Why are we doing this? Why the matzah? Why the bitter herbs? Why the leaning? Why the dipping? Why, 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 why? Right? We ask why. And in doing so, we... This is a lesson unto itself. It's really not about the answer on the night of Passover. It's really not so much about the answer that we give the child, but the freedom that we give, that we teach the child, the freedom to ask the question. Because when we, ha- when we can ask the question, when we can feel comfortable in asking, that opens up all of the doors of learning and, and experience and experiencing. So to ask is a powerful, powerful tool in our learning. So point number one of this, of this series is the value of asking why. It's not heretical. It's not like, oh my gosh, you're asking why? You're questioning. (laughs) There's no question to be afraid of in Judaism. If there was a question, if there was a type of question, Hey everybody, I think I think I cut out for a minute. My internet just went down for like Rabbi. Oh Rabbi, you're muted. Hey guys, can you hear me? I know what you're asking. Why did I cut out? It's a good question. It's a why question. It's even a Jewish question tonight. The answer is the mystery of the internet. My internet connection dropped for a minute. Who knows? But anyway, getting back to the Seder. The Seder teaches us about the power of the question. And again, I, I want to clarify that last point that I was making. To me, this is my own, my own take on this. It's less critical on the night of the Seder what we, what we answer our children. What's more critical is that we gave them a platform to ask. We made them comfortable to ask the question because learning and connection happens through the freedom to ask. In any totalitarian system, the first thing that goes is permission to ask. In any totalitarian system, when there's, a, there's an attempt to squash the people, the first thing that goes is the ability to ask the question. In Judaism, there's always permission to ask. If you ever ask the rabbi, so tell me, you know, why do we do this? And if you were told the answer, oh, you can't ask that question. You're not allowed to ask why. You just have to do it. If that's what you got, then with all due respect to whoever said that, I will tell you that that is not an accurate portrayal of Judaism. That's the the answer of somebody who maybe didn't know the answer. Sorry, the response of someone who maybe didn't know the answer. But that's not an accurate portrayal of Judaism. There's no, um, 
just to clarify, there's no like loophole in Judaism where like, oh, you ask that question, uh-oh, uh-oh. There's no fear of a question taking the whole system down. Judaism, when do you become defensive with a question? It's only if you don't have a good answer or if you're going to be exposed to be a fraud. Judaism has nothing to be afraid of. And we should have nothing to be afraid of. We should feel comfortable to ask the question. We should feel comfortable to explore the answers. If the person that we ask doesn't have the answer, that's fine. Let's keep on looking. Um, I, I'll just tell you from my, the way, my personal approach. If somebody asks me a question um, and I don't know the answer, what do you think I say? Those that know me, what do you think I say? Yeah, I say, I don't know the answer. It's okay. I don't know the answer. I, I don't have to know all the answers. It helps to know where to look. Helps to know which, uh, which you know, where, the sources to look at. But there's no shame in not knowing, in not knowing the answer. There's a, I, and I think it's, a per, it's, a, it's not a Jewish thing. It's a personality thing. So if you ever got the response, maybe you were in Hebrew school, Sunday school, back in the day. Maybe, you know, I would call like an old school rabbi fire and brimstone type who said you have to do it because you have to do it and you can't ask why eh, again with all due respect you can you can ask don't worry you can ask there are good answers for everything you just have to know where to look and if, if, if one person doesn't know keep on looking so that hopefully sets the stage this question number one, we're gonna cover seven questions tonight in addition to yours question number one is why ask why the answer is because that's how we connect. Because that's part of the Jewish process. We ask why, and we continue to explore. Because when we know, the more we know, the more we actually connect. Otherwise, it's a robotic experience. Like I am doing, and I don't know why. And that's, I don't know. It's not. It's. It's not. You're not fully engaged. Where's your head? It's elsewhere. You checked out. That's not a good thing. You want to be fully engaged. Make sense so far? Yes. Yes. Question. David, yeah. Question. So, you know, we we have all the couple of courses and we're, we're looking deeper into all this. And this morning when I was doing reading Ashray, this struck me. Gadol Hashem Muhammad So his greatness is beyond imagination, unsearchable. How far do you search? Right. Yeah, so good question. So I think that that verse from the book of Psalms penned by King David, that verse speaks about the infinite nature of God, right? How God is beyond, beyond everything, beyond, beyond. And the implication of that might be, well, then you can never understand God, so don't bother searching, right? Vilugdulato ein heker, you can't, you can't discover, fathom, you know, the wonders of God. And although that's true, but throughout the Jewish experience, whether it's the Bible, whether it's the Talmud, whether it's areas of Jewish law, whether it's Kabbalah and Hasidic philosophy, there's always a pursuit of knowledge. So statement number one is, we'll never figure out everything. Statement number two is, we're going to keep on trying. The best we can. It's almost like what it says in Pirkei Avod, Ethics of Our Fathers. Lo alecha hamalacha ligmar. You and I are not necessarily obligated to finish the job. Avalo choren But you can't, therefore, not even try. Right? So we may not get the job done, 
but we have to keep on pushing. We have to start the ball rolling and get as far as we can. So will we ever understand all of the mysteries of Judaism of God? No. Are we going to ask as many questions and explore as much as we can? Absolutely. So that's the tension. And that's beautiful because it speaks to two truths. Our pursuit of knowledge and connection on the one hand and our, rec and our recognition on the other hand that there are things that are beyond us and that itself is magical. It's majestic. Okay, hope, hope that made sense. But good question. Um, okay, I don't, I did, you know what? I have to, I have to apologize because I don't know if you asked it in the form of a why question. Um, and I should have made sure, right? I was nice the first time, but like those old school rabbis, if you do it again, no, I'm kidding. Um, okay, good, just having some fun. Let's jump into our next question. Now, these questions are loose, tonight's seven questions are loosely related. Um, you will find some threads that kind of connect all the questions together. They're going to jump around a little bit, mixing, you know, belief, philosophy, biblical literacy, culture, fun things, bizarre things. It's going to be a mixture. Let's jump into the next topic. Um, the next topic is miracles. So some of you join me about, I would say, maybe now a month and a half ago, two months ago, right after Passover, you know, time is a little, bit, a little bit weird nowadays. Anyway, we did a course right after Passover called Miracles. We did a four-part series looking at the Kabbalistic understanding of miracles. But one question that we maybe didn't address head-on in that Miracles course, um, where we examine the nature of miracles themselves, is a fundamental question, which is when you look, when you read the Bible, wow, you have miracles all over the place. You have 10 plagues, and you have seas that are splitting, and you have revelations at Sinai, and you have food coming down from heaven, and you have walls falling down in Jericho with Joshua. You have all of these fantastic things, and then you look around, and you're thinking, okay, so what happened to the miracles? Like, where, what's going on nowadays? Uh, what, God, like, went on vacation? What's, what's going on here? And the question itself is coming from two places. Number one, um, somebody might say to themselves, you know, we could use a few miracles. Like, what, we could probably benefit from a miraculous end to COVID, right? I think so, right? A miraculous end to human suffering, yeah, that would be great. Miraculous uh, onset of world peace, that would be amazing. So part of the question of why don't we have miracles today, that's our second question, why no miracles, or at least on a consistent basis. Part of that question is driven by our desire to have such intervention. The second, the second motivation behind that question is more of a cynical note. And that is somebody says, so, hmm, you're telling me in the times of the Bible you had all of these miracles, but conveniently, today, we don't have miracles. Uh-huh. Sure. Okay. So, times of the Bible, all of these miracles were happening Daily basis, all these cool things, and today, nothing. So did, did they really happen then, or was that somehow imagined? What's going on with that? So because of these two reasons, number one, somebody might want 
a miraculous intervention, maybe either personally or collectively, for the benefit of themselves or the whole world. And also from a place of perhaps cynicism, we might be wondering why aren't there the same type of miracles today? I want to give you an approach that is, I think, pretty profound. And it comes from a classic Jewish source. I'm going to share my screen with you one more time. Uh, not one more, but once again, more accurately stated. I'm going to skip text two from Jonathan Sachs. Let's go to, yeah, why are there no miracles today of biblical proportions? Yeah, by the way, there are miracles today, smaller miracles, you know, coincidences or whatever, things that kind of work out. But really the question here is of biblical proportions, like really big stuff, like Kant and I, splitting of the sea, that sort of thing. Okay, so let's explore the text from Rabbi Yecheskel Landau, known as the No W Yehuda. Take a look at what he writes. So it's a, it's a bit of a long text, or it's a longer text. It's not a snapshot. It's, it's, it's fleshed out. I want you to halt cup, which Yiddish for um, pay, pay, focus on the flow of ideas here because it's pretty, pretty profound. Okay, let's do this. When Joshua arrived to conquer Israel, the land of the seven nations, people could have suspected that God did not instruct him to do so. Although God told him every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, I have given to you, Joshua 1.3, nevertheless, the nations could have argued that this was false and that Joshua was coming to misappropriate their land by his own might and the strength of his people. I want to state this in my own words. Um, what the Noda Yehuda is saying is that there could have been a claim by the nations of the world that the Jews essentially stole the land of Israel back in the day. Let's, let's take a look. Let's continue. This is why Jericho, Yericho, the border city and the first city to be taken was not conquered by natural means. Jews did not scale its walls, crash its gates, or lay prolonged siege until the starving inhabitants would be forced to open the city gates. Rather, they walked around the city seven times, sounded their chauffeurs, and the walls miraculously fell. As the verse says, the people shouted when they blew with their chauffeurs, and it came to pass when the people heard the sound of the chauffeur, and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. With this, all of the nations saw that this was not a natural conquest, and that human prowess was not responsible for it. They realized that it was a divine miracle, and that God, this is the key line, and that God willed that Joshua and the Jews take the land. We do not find, and then here, here's really the clincher, we do not find Joshua conquering any other fortified city through such miraculous means. He conquered them, in other words, the rest of the cities after Jericho, he conquered them with normative warfare. They had to scale the walls, they had to, they had to siege the cities, etc. Why? Because God already broadcasted at the outset of the conquest that Joshua was a divine messenger with respect to this war. And it was unnecessary to repeat this message each time, for a legitimate messenger of God would not contravene God's wishes and would not conquer that which God did not command him to conquer. Essentially, you know, maybe I'll ask this and, and unmute yourself if you can respond to this question. 
um, according to the Noda Yehuda and his um, exposition, his analysis of the story of Joshua and Jericho and the, the miraculous fall of the walls of Jericho, based on that explanation in that context, tell me, why doesn't God, um, why, okay, I'll, let me ask an arrow question. Question, why did God perform that miracle for Jericho, but not for the other cities in, in Israel? Why? Someone, someone unmute yourself and give me the answer. Why does God miraculously cause Jericho to fall, but does not miraculously cause the other cities in Israel to fall? The other nations just presumed that it was a losing battle. It's a, it, no, there's a, there's a nuance here. It's because, somebody else tell me why, based on the note of Yehuda, why, why is it that God miraculously had Jericho's walls fall, but not the other cities? Based on what we just read. It wasn't necessary. It wasn't necessary. The, whole, the only reason why it was a miracle by Jericho was to, was, to teach, was to teach the world, was to make a point. And what was the point? This is not a natural conquest. This is divinely ordained. How many times do you have to make the point? You make it once and you're done. So God, at the outset, makes a declaration. I hereby declare that I, God, have determined that the Jewish people should now conquer the land of Israel. That's it. All you have to do is make the statement once, and the statement's made. You don't have to make it every single time. So now, after Jericho, the statement of Jericho, the walls falling down miraculously, after that statement, now the Jews have to sweat if they want to conquer the land. Not because it's not divinely ordained, but because God only makes a statement once. And after that, now you have to put in your effort which tells us, opens up the door, opens up a window of understanding into all of the, the miracles of the Bible. They're all done once to teach a point, but not becoming a normative way of behavior. Let me explain. Ten plagues, right? What? Let me give you a scenario. Actually, I'll ask you to give me a scenario. The Jewish people are slaves. I'm painting a scenario. You give me the solution. The Jewish people are slaves in Egypt. 210 years of harsh slavery. How We know how slavery ended with 10 plagues that just wreaked havoc on, on, on Egypt. Let me ask you a question. Can you tell me a less miraculous way, a more normative way, natural way of Egyptian slavery ending? I hope you understand the question. Can you tell me a scenario, give me a narrative of how perhaps... Not, not how it did happen, but in a, th a theoretical sense, how could Egyptian slavery have ended in a natural fashion? Go ahead. A slave uprising. What else? Perfect. Good. What else? Egyptians could say you're free. Perfect. Maybe, I was thinking, maybe a new pharaoh might, might get appointed or whatever, become pharaoh, who's super progressive, believes in human rights. He says, hey guys... Let's, um, let's move this whole Egypt thing from like, ooh, having slaves to like walking like an Egyptian. Remember Steve Martin? Da, 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 ba, ba. So wait, let's, just, let's just call it a day. Maybe. May <laughs> Listen, you got to have a little, uh, a, a little um, you know, cultural reference here and there. Look, e Egypt 
Slavery could have ended any number of ways that would have been natural and normal. So why did God, why did God pull off a miracle? Couldn't God have kind of arranged things to get a new Pharaoh who has modern ideas and have him emancipate the Jews on his own? Couldn't that have happened? Sure. So why didn't God do that? Why didn't God kind of orchestrate behind the scenes in a natural way? You know why? Because God was telling, was making a statement. Again, here's the core idea. Biblical miracles were statements needed to be made once, and then that's it. What was the statement? Number one, God says, I am in control. The Pharaohs then, the Pharaoh then, and Pharaohs for all time who think that they're in control, God's making a statement. You're in control, you're the God, you're the king, king of the Nile, are you kidding me? Blood, frogs, lice, etc. You got nothing. That's statement number one of the template. Statement number two is, slavery is abhorrent. Slavery is not okay. It is not okay to subjugate another people. That's it. That's the statement. God makes a dramatic statement once, and that's it. So you ask the question, how come God doesn't intervene with human suffering throughout history? What about all of the people, including Jews, by the way, that have suffered throughout the millennia? How come God doesn't step in like he did in Egypt? You know what the answer is? God already made the statement and gave the teaching, and now it's up to us. We know God's position on it. God's position is it's not okay. Now the question is, so why are we okay with it? <laughs> That's the question. It's like somebody once asked Lubavitcher Rebbe, how come, why didn't God stop the Holocaust from happening? How could, how could God allow the Holocaust to happen? And the Rebbe said, I also have the question. But you know what my question is? How could human beings allow the Holocaust to happen? The fact that God could have or couldn't have, of course God could have stopped it. So why didn't he? You and I have the answer. It's because the whole miraculous intervention thing is done once to make a statement and to teach a lesson. And after that, now we become the responsible parties. We don't... Yeah. Can I ask you a quick question? Yeah, absolutely, of course. Uh, was the statement being made primarily to the Egyptians or was it not being made to the Israelites as well? Both. Because, because in Exodus, you know, it talks about how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Uh, so it, it has always seemed to me that, that, the, that the statement or the, the, the point was uh, also being made very much to the, to the people of Israel who had been enslaved and had a slave mentality at that point. Yes, yes, absolutely. The statement was made for the Jews and for the Egyptians, for the people living then and for the people who everyone else who would come after that point in time who would just read the stories of the Bible. The messages are clear. Do not subjugate another human being. They are not yours. They're not yours. Every human being is created in the image of God. Do not subjugate another human being. Human rights, freedom, emancipation, these are divine biblical values. God makes a statement once. You asked a good question, though. You know, why, why did God punish the Egyptians? I, I'm putting words, in, words into your mouth. Don't worry. I, I, I'm very well aware of what I'm, what I'm doing right now. But you can ask the question, why did God punish the Egyptians or Pharaoh if he hardened their heart? How is that fair? God makes you do a sin and then God punishes you? 
Stay tuned. We're going to answer. I believe we have that in one of the subsequent lessons. If not, I will make sure to answer it um, because it is a very good question. Um, but to answer your direct question, the statement was both for the Egyptians who were doing the subject, Pharaoh and the Egyptians, who were doing the enslaving and also for the Jews who were being enslaved and also for us who might sit back and say, well, you know, we don't know where we stand. Or maybe there's a little bit of ambivalence, you know, like, uh, should I say something? Should I not say something? What do we do? Do we make a statement to this, that, or the other? The statement's been made. Uh, how many statements do you need? God put out a press release. Slavery is not okay. You, you have a question now? What's the question? Where's the question? You already had the message. This becomes the key to understanding the biblical miracles. They were all statements only needed to be made once. So you have the statement of Egypt. You have the statement at Sinai, right? God's Torah. You have the statement at Jericho. The land of Israel is connected with the Jews. Divinely ordained. It's not just, you know, a bunch of Jews came and, and stormed the land. No, it was miraculous. In other words, divinely ordained. These are the statements. So now in 2020, if somebody says to the Jewish people, right? We even have, okay, I'm not going to get political, even though it's not political, but not going to bring up, you know, actors that may have made statements that may be Jewish in the last week or so. I'm not going to, I'm not going to mention it. Oh, maybe I just did. But anyway, here's the point. The point is that in 2020, a person might ask the question, why Israel for the Jews? We already have the answer. It's divinely ordained. It's God's gift to the Jewish people. And, and where, where was that on full display? With the miracles of Jericho. That's what the No Wuda says. Rabbi Yechaz we just read it in text, whatever it was, text three. That's the statement. So, to answer the question, why don't we have today miracles of biblical proportions? Because we don't need them. We already got all God's statements. We know, we know what we need to do. Now we just need to do it. So, oh, so we want God to take care of business. God says, no, I want you to take care of business. We want God to end Human suffering. We want God to end human trafficking. Let's speak very, very real here. Human trafficking is a massive problem. Yeah? Kidnappings, etc. So, God should come in and end human trafficking. God says, I already did that. Now you need to do that. Now you need to do that. Human beings, clean up your act. We have to clean up, clean this up. That's our job. That's literally our job. We have one job, to live a good life and in accordance to the, uh, to the teachings of God and Torah. So we have to, that's our job. So could there be theoretically a, a miracle biblical proportions? Sure, if God wanted, but why would God do that? They were only intended to make statements. The statements have been made. Now we just have to follow through. Does that make sense? Oh, so... Yes, yes. Jeff, Jeffrey is writing something very powerful, which is we absolutely have miracles today. I mean, life itself is a miracle. Birth is a miracle. And I agree. So that's what Jeff writes. I agree 100%. But I think, not but, at the same time, here's the key idea. The question is not, you know, why don't we have any miracles today? We do have. We have miracles that require a little bit of meditation, a little bit of uh, looking deeply and peeling back the layers. We don't have like sea splitting in front of us or walls tumbling down. You know why? 
because those were meant to make a statement. Once the statement's made, it's in the books. Just read it. You got your statement. You don't need that miracle. But yes, life itself is a miracle. The fact that the earth is positioned exactly close enough to the sun where the sun provides warmth and light and, and, and growth, but far enough that it doesn't burn us up altogether, that's not a miracle. I mean, seriously, that's a, of course it's a miracle. Um, yeah, going to the moon. You saw that landing yesterday? Who saw that landing? The SpaceX uh, thing in the water? It's incredible stuff. Amazing. Anyway, what's the point? There are miracles all around us, and even human ingenu uh, ingenuity is also the product of God's blessings to us and, and, and the resources that God implanted in this world that we're just now discovering and exploiting for good, hopefully for good. It's all a miracle. We're talking a specific question. Why not the miracles on the level of the biblical... Uh, you know, that was like, oh my gosh, that's crazy, unexplainable. And the answer is because those were, meant, those were making statements and, um, and the statements have been made. Okay, let's move on. Let me just double check to see if we have more questions in the chat. Um, okay. Makes sense? Give me a thumbs up if this is making sense so far. Yes? Okay. Good. Kosha. Let's turn to question number three. All right, we're skipping around a little bit. Like I said, it's, uh, it's a free-flowing discussion. Next question is, why do we pray? Why do we daven? What's the point of prayer? Now, you, this, this might not be a question that's like, you know, the first question about Judaism is, is why prayer? Because many different groups and religions and belief systems pray, right? You know what they say, there's no, uh, there's no atheists in, uh, in a foxhole, right? That's the, so at some point, you know, prayer is, uh, is, 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 is almost like a natural thing in, under certain circumstances. The question, though, we're going to ask is, in Judaism, what's the role or why is there a, a place for prayer? And the, 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 the rationale behind the question is, if we believe, which Judaism does, that God is in control, so then why do we pray? What's, what's, the, what's the meaning of prayer? God has a plan, so then God has a plan. If God doesn't have a plan, then what kind of God is that? So why are we praying? What, what, what are we doing? If God's going to give us this, He'll give it to us without prayer. If God is not going to give it to us, then it's not happening. So what's... Not what? Why are we praying? I want to give you three approaches that I think are very powerful. Different approaches. Each one speaks to a powerful truth. Okay, approach number one. I'm going to share my screen with you once again. If you have the file, you can use that. Otherwise, take a look at what we have right over here. Okay, why do we pray? Doesn't God know? Just to see the question here written, why do we pray? Doesn't God know what he's doing? Can we really affect his will? In other words, change God's mind? That seems to be very presumptuous. Okay, take a look at 4a. This is coming from a Hasidic source. Really beautiful in, in this, uh, this angle on prayer, understanding prayer and the power of prayer. Let's go. Let's jump in. Earlier scholars have questioned how prayer could be effective. An effective prayer implies that God changed his will, that before the prayer he wanted one thing and through prayer he will something else. And that seems to be problematic or highly questionable. Okay, in response, the students of the Baal Shem Tov, the Baal Shem Tov, parenthetically, just highlighting it. Baal Shem Tov was the founder of the Hasidic movement 
who lived in the 1700s. So, in response, the students of the Baal Shem Tov taught that through prayer, you connect to a loftier place. And this renders you a new person. Although something particular may have been decreed upon you, your prayer to the Creator connects you with a higher place and you experience a rebirth. Accordingly, there is no change in God's will, for God's original plan never pertained to the new person you have become through prayer. So this is a very interesting, it's a very neat, I would say, neat, N-E-A-T, answer to the question about like why prayer and, and what's going on with prayer. So a person, you know, there might be a decree or some sort of uh, destiny for a certain person. Okay, it's God's will. So what does prayer do? Prayer is a process, not about saying words. It's not prayer. That's speaking. That's, that's uh, mumbling words. Prayer is about an introspective process where a person connects themselves to a higher level and does internal work to become a new person. And when you become an, I say a new person, you, you, you change who you are. And when you change who you are, then the destiny that was destined for the old you is not applicable to the new you. I'll tell you a story. What's a fellow named Yankel? Yeah, Yankel, a nice Jewish boy. Very devout, very spiritual, showed up in synagogue to pray, did all of the commandments, all of the mitzvot, very religious person. Jerry, it's, I'm glad to see that you have the phone with the, the rim shot. All right, it's, it's, coming up, it's coming up soon. All right, so this fellow, Jerry, uh, not Jerry, sorry, Yankel, is very devout. He decides one day, that's it, too much religion, too much God, too much Judaism, he's out. He takes off the beard, he takes off the kippah, takes off the talit, katan, the tzitzis, the whole, all the Jewish garb, and he heads to Vegas. Oh, he's going to enjoy life in Vegas. That's it. No more rules and no more regulations. That's it. He goes to the casino. He's having an amazing night. It's a party. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And as he walks out from his first night in Vegas, he walks out of the casino, bam, gets run over by a bus. He's done. Comes up to heaven and he's, he meets God and he says, or he says, tell me where God is. I got to speak to him. Unbelievable. I was devout, religious for decades. One night of fun and you take me out? Yeah, so devout. And God says, oh my gosh, I'm sorry, Yankel, is that you? I didn't recognize you. Okay, yeah, you got the joke? Okay, so what's the point? The point is that we have, all right, listen, we're over, it's on Zoom, so it's, everything's going to be a little bit, you know, a little bit, you know, more awkward than it usually is. Now, what this tells us is, I don't know if this tells us, but the, the point of the joke is, you know, we can change who we are, for better or for worse. And, and um, prayer is about that process of personal change. It's not about covering ground in a prayer book and turning pages. It's not what prayer, it's not what tefillah is. Tefillah, prayer, is a time to get serious, introspective. It's a time to think about where am I holding? What am I doing? What can I work on? And to commit to change. And when we change, perfect. Now we have a new destiny opened up in front of us because whatever was decreed against the old us is for the old us. This is the new us. By the way, parenthetically, this is why there's a custom. You may, you may be aware of this custom. 
Um, it's related. It's not exactly, but it's related. Um, somebody, God forbid, is ill, right? Then maybe you can help, you know, let me make this interactive. What are, what's one of the things that's done uh, for the merit of somebody who's ill? What do we do sometimes? A Jewish practice. Help me out. Unmute yourself if you know it. Psalms. Say it again. Tehillim. Good. We say Psalms. What else? What else? Yes. Good. What else? Adrian. Were you going to answer? Sorry, I didn't. No. What, what's, a, what's a custom that, uh, sorry, it's like an auction. So, Mishaberach. good. We visit them. What else? Give me something that's, uh, that's a little bit radical. Tzedakah. Tzedakah, good. What else? Something radical. Have you ever heard of the custom of adding a name to someone who's sick? We add a Hebrew name? No. Yeah, yeah, it's done. We add a Hebrew, sometimes. Somebody's, God forbid, really sick. There's actually a tradition to add a name, to give them a new name. Or, or add an additional name, like, for example, Chaim, which means life, or Rafael, which means um, healing. Or for a, for a woman, it would be Chaya, again, which means life. Um, there's a custom to add a name. And what's the rationale behind it? It's the same thing. Because what we're saying is, what we're declaring, hopefully, is that whatever decree, negative decree was against the person, that's not them anymore. They have a new name. New name, new destiny, new persona, new reality. That's, that's what we're trying to trigger with the name change. But that's something that we can do each day when we pray. Prayer is not meant to just be uh, rote or saying words. It's meant to be a transformative experience. So that's one angle on it. Let me share my screen with you, and let's explore some more, um, some more notions of the power and the, the significance of prayer. Okay, take a look at text 4b from the um, Arve Nachal. The philosophers ask about the fact that whenever we are in distress, we, we attempt to change things through prayer. Is it conceivable, he asks, that prayer could change God's will? Take a look. The Talmud provides an answer to this question. It states that on the third day of creation, vegetation emerged from the earth, but only slightly. It did not grow until Adam came into existence and prayed on its behalf, whereupon rain descended and the vegetation grew. This teaches us, no pun intended, that God thirsts for the prayers of the righteous. Accordingly, God does not change His plans through prayer. God's intention from the outset was to withhold rain so that man would pray and that only then rain would fall. What this means is that it's not that we're changing God's mind when we pray, or changing God's destiny, or changing God's will, or somehow forcing God into some sort of behavior. No, that's not what it means at all. What it means is, is that God wants a partnership. God wants us to be part of the experience. So God says, look, I want to give you this, that, and the other blessing. But I don't want to just give it to you. I want you to, to ask for it. When you ask for it, when you work for it, then you'll get it. But that way you become partners and you and I become partners in, in the experience. So that's the second understanding of why do we pray. Why do we pray? Because God wants us to be active partners in the experience. God wants us to speak up. God wants us to ask. And then God will deliver. Let, uh, I'll share my screen with you. Let's get one more answer, one more perspective on prayer. Um, here we go. This is text number 4C. Here we go. Uh, this is from a Chabad Hasidic source. The objective... The objective of prayer is summed up by the words, Yehi Ratzon, may it be your will. 
This implies that our prayers initiate a new divine will to heal the sick and release the captured. And this is probably the most radical of all the approaches, of all three approaches. And this says that, in fact, you and I do have the power to change God's will. Why? Not because we have the power, but because God so de decreed it that you and I should have that power. It's almost like, give you an example. It's like a child, um, it's like a parent who says to a child, um, clean up your room and you'll get a cookie. I'm not advocating that as, as, as good or bad parenting. I'm just saying, imagine a scenario where a parent tells a child, clean up your room and, and you'll get a cookie. And imagine the, 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 the child doesn't clean up the room, but comes over to the, to the parent and, you know, with, uh, with very endearing eyes, looks up and climbs up onto their lap and gives them a big hug and says, can I have a cookie anyway? And the parent's heart melts and says, yeah, you can have a cookie. So what happened? The child changed the parent's mind, right? The parent had made a decision that, you know, only get the cookie if you clean your room. But the child asked and the parent says, you know what? That's the type of connection that you have. That's the type of pull that you have that, yeah, you can even change the parent's mind. So we have the same effect, if you will, on God. That's the most radical approach. The first, so what are the three approaches in summary? Approach number one is, again, how does prayer work or why does prayer work? Why do we pray? Number one, um, it's not prayer that works. It's magically, it's that we change. And once we change, then there's a new reality in front of us. Number two, God wants us to ask, He's waiting for us to ask in order to give. Approach number three is, when we ask, we can actually create a new reality. And that's, of course, the, uh, the highest level approach. Okay, hope that made sense. Any questions, comments on the prayer question? Jump in. I'll ask you a question. Why no questions? I'm kidding. That's a why question. Okay, let's jump in and look at the next question. Um, okay, question number four. Ah, oh, ho, 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 ho. Yep, here we go. Heavy-duty question. Why is there so much fragmentation in Jewish practice? Or the way I want to state it is, why can't Jews get along? Why is there so much... There's this group and that group and the other group, and then you have the Safari and Ashkenazi, and you have different customs, different rituals, and different synagogues, and different this and different that. And we all know the joke about the man who's stranded, the Jew who's on a desert island, and who, uh, yeah, and who um, gives a tour once he's rescued of the island. And he says, There are three synagogues. And he says, They ask, Why do you need three synagogues? He says, Well, this is the synagogue I go to. This is a synagogue I used to go to, and this is the synagogue I would never step foot into. All right, so what's the point? The point is there's fragmentation, and oftentimes it becomes divisive, and it becomes ugly, unfortunately. So the question is, why? Where does it come from? Why is, why is there so much fragmentation when it comes to Judaism and Jewish practice? I want to share with you what I think is a really beautiful insight. So take a look at your screen. Here we go. Text number five. This comes from Rabbi Chaim Vital, one of the major Kabbalists of the 1500s, the student, the primary student of the Arizal, Rabbi Isaac Luria, um, who, of course, is the father of Luriana Kabbalah. So take a look what he writes. German, Spanish, Catalan, 
Italian and other Jews have different customs pertaining to prayer. Oh, so he focused on prayer, but this will be instructive for our general discussion. So he said, they have different customs pertaining to prayer, not only with regard to recently written liturgical poems and hymns, but also with regard to essential components of prayer that are mandated by Jewish law. So he's really not asking, he's asking without asking the question of why is there so much diversity and differentiation amongst Jews and, and, and cultures. So he says, my teacher, the Arizal, the aforementioned Kabbalist, would say that there are 12 supernal gates that correspond to the 12 tribes and that these are alluded to at the end of the book of Ezekiel. Each tribe's prayer ascends through its own gate. Each gate and the spiritual paths that lead to them is certainly not identical. Correspondingly, each tribe prays with variations. People, look at this, people should therefore maintain their unique prayer customs. It is possible that the versions they were taught correspond to their particular tribe and are the means by which their prayers ascend. However, he says, as a, as a disclaimer, or, or yeah, caveat disclaimer, these the, the laws that are clearly stated in the Talmud apply equally for all tribes. But his point is that there are differences and distinctions in tradition. You have nuances in the prayer rituals and other customs. Like I said before, there's his focus is on prayer, but I'm, I'm expanding it. Svari, Ashkenazi, different communities. A Jew from Atlanta might have a different custom than a Jew from Chile that might have a different custom from a Jew in South Africa that might have a different custom from a Jew in France and Italy and Australia and Russia and Israel, etc. Why the diversity? Beautiful idea. There are 12 tribes, right? And each one has their own path. Now, today we don't know exactly who's from which tribe. Some people do know if they're a Kohen or a Levi, but most people don't really know which tribe. But the point is the, still the point. There are different paths. They all lead to the same place. We embrace our own path, knowing that it's a valid path and it's a way to connection with the source. So what's important here is the idea of God liking diversity. God liking differentiation. And this is what, di what, what distinguishes God from human beings. See, there's one God, but God created billions of people. So God likes, clearly likes diversity. What about us? Everyone has to be like me. If you're not like me, you're out of here. Get out of here. What are you talking about? You're wrong. That's what human beings are. Human beings are so absolute, so like my way or the highway. It's frightening sometimes. Sometimes we can't tolerate someone that has a different difference of opinion, right? Somebody disagrees, somebody has a different outlook on, on life, that's it, they're trafe. I can't talk to them. Why are we so judgmental? Remember, God's perspective, God, there's one God, and God's open to so much diversity. And us who are diverse, we try to make everything one. It's a little bizarre, it's a little strange, but... Listen, we have our quirks. That's what makes us. Uh, that's what makes it interesting. I'm sure God finds us uh, humorous on some level um, with all of our stuff. Anyway, what's the point? Here's here's the the bottom line of this uh, of of this idea. That is, let's respect the other the other's path as being a path, right? It may not be our path. That's okay, but it's a path. And if it's a path, that's it. Gesundheit, hate. Knock yourself out. As long as it's not hurting anybody, right? That's it. So what's the message? The message is diversity and tolerance and love and the R word, which is respect. You see, the difference between love and respect 
you know, when somebody, I say this all the time, but it's, I think it's so true. Somebody tells you what they think. Somebody shares with you what's on their mind. And your response is, you know what? I love that. What does that mean? Do you disagree? Do you agree or disagree with what they're saying? If you say, after hearing someone's idea, if you say, you know what? I love that. What does that indicate? Agree. You agree. What happens if somebody shares their opinion? You say, you know what? I can respect that. What does that mean? What I is, hear you. I, I, don't, I don't agree with you, but I respect you. That's the key. You know, it's easy to love the person that's like you. It's hard to respect the person who's different than you. But that's the point. The point is the R word, respect. Right? Respect, distinction. Some of you may know this, I, about a year ago, it's like almost exactly a year ago actually, I published a book or that we, yeah, some of you were at the book launch and book signing that we did at Chabad in town. The book that I wrote is called Inclusion and the Power of the Individual. And it's a book first and foremost about what we call special needs. The idea of, and when I say what, what we call special needs, because I think we all have gifts and the more we embrace everyone, the better. So I don't even like the label special needs, which still almost sounds like, you know, two different camps, if you will. But anyway, the point is, the point of the book was, and some of you I know have read it, it's about inclusion. It's about truly honoring, respecting, loving the other person like yourself. And again, the context was special needs and how we need to be more inclusive as a Jewish community, but also as a, as a, as a world, as a humanity. Um, and I think this is part of it. You know, why are there different customs amongst Jews? Because it's cool. Because why not? Because we're all different. The real question is, why can't we stand? Why does it bother us that someone's different? That's the, that's the internal question. That's the million dollar question. Why does it bother us when someone else believes a little bit differently than we do. Why can't we, why does it rot, shake us to the core? Why can't we respect the other person? I'll tell you a story from the Talmud. The Talmud says something very frightening, very scary. One of the greatest teachers in the times of the Talmud, oh really the Mishnah, but 2000, 1800 years ago, one of the greatest, well no, 2000 years ago, one of the greatest Jewish teachers was a, a man named Rabbi Akiva. And you might be familiar with the name Rabbi Akiva. He had 24,000 students plus in his academy. It's a big, big school. Um, and Rabbi Akiva's students, over a given period, of, a certain period of time, they all died. 24,000 students died. And the Talmud says it was a spiritual plague. Why did they die? Because Shaloi Nahagu, I'm going to tell you the language, this is the quote verbatim. Shaloi Nahagu Kavod Ze Laze. They didn't accord each other honor and respect. They didn't respect each other. So, they, their end came. The commentators asked the question, it doesn't make any sense. Rabbi Akiva was the one who taught that the verse, the biblical verse, love your fellows yourself, that's the key verse of the entire Bible. The key biblical verse 
The, the ultimate verse of the Torah is, love your fellows yourself. That was what their teacher, Rabbi Akiva, was championing. He was like promoting, love your fellows yourself, love your fellows. How could his own students be the ones that didn't honor each other? And you know what the answer is? They loved each other. But because they loved, they said, I don't respect you until you act like me. I love you, so why aren't you more like me? I love you, so therefore I'm going to tell you you're doing it wrong. It's because of love. Out of love, I'm going to tell you that you got it all wrong. Because I love you. And I love my fellow as myself. So if I have the truth with a capital T, if I've seen the light, then I feel bad that you haven't. So you need to behave like I behave. Otherwise, you're no good. That's called lack of respect. That's what it is. They loved, they didn't respect. That's what it comes down to. So what's the moral of the story? <laughs> Why is there diversity? Because God likes diversity. Why are we intolerant? That's the question. That's the question. Um, I, some of you know this about me. My campaign in life is this idea. Is people coming together. I think this is the ultimate challenge, not only of our generation, but since the temple was destroyed 2,000 years ago because we were fighting with each other, this has been the consistent problem. Yeah, we have challenges from without, anti-Semitism, not discounting that, but the biggest challenge in, within Judaism is the infighting. We are such a small minority, we are such a small family, and we can't get along. If there's one thing that you get from tonight, in addition to all of the other stuff, or not in addition, if there's one thing you walk away tonight with, which is asking, all of us asking ourselves the question, why are we so intolerant? Why does it really get us going when somebody believes something a little bit different than us? Right? Why can't we respect the other? Right? Put an arm around them and say, we don't see eye to eye, but you know what? We can have a dialogue. Why can't we do that? If that's, to me, that's the ultimate why question in life that's meant to evoke a response of let me change that about myself. But again, something to think about. Okay, make sense? Yes? Yes? Okay, I'm getting, I'm getting thumbs ups. Okay, thank you. Um, let's continue. Let's continue. I'm going to share my screen. Let's do the next question. Okay. Good. We're, our, our timing, by the way, in case you're wondering about timing, this class is 90 minutes. We're going till 9.30, and we're right on target with, with time. So let's continue. Um, I'm going to skip question five. We'll come back to that. Let's go to... Ah. Oh. Here we go. <laughs> We are not shying away from questions. Okay, in case you were wondering, you know, are we gonna ask the big questions? Boom, question number six. Why don't Jews accept the Christian Messiah? Right, many people have asked, why don't Jews accept Jesus? What's wrong? Why not? Right, don't Jews believe in the Messiah? So no, we got somebody, Jesus. Okay, so here is so let's talk about Jewish, fundamental Jewish beliefs and the role of different religions 
and the understanding of Judaism vis-a-vis Christianity. Um, and I think the, the easiest way to answer this is on a very basic level. Judaism and Christianity, although very often considered to be related, religiously related, right? Um, I don't know, sister religions, but I guess Judaism is like the parent religion that, whatever, but, but related. And in America, we talk about, I don't know if it's accurate or not, but you, you hear the phrase Judeo-Christian values, which puts Judaism and Christianity with a hyphen. So it sounds like they're, you know, they're related with a hyphen, you know, it sounds like a, a connection. But in truth, on, on, very, um, on very fundamental levels, Judaism has different beliefs than Christianity. Or I would say Christianity um, has very different beliefs than Judaism. Regarding God, regarding um, Torah, regarding the Messiah. On, on many, even though some words are the same, very different fundamental beliefs. It's interesting because um, many, many, many years ago, in the Middle Ages, so there was a campaign. This would, we could do a, many, many classes on just this topic. So I'm going to go through it very quickly. Just, it's only just briefly mentioning it. So I know I'm not elaborating, but, but stay with me. In the Middle Ages, there were Jews who converted out of the faith to Christianity, a few, who then made it their life's mission to get the Jews to, to try to force all of the Jews to convert. So one of the famous um, Jews who did this was a fellow who became known as Pablo Christiani. Pablo Christiani, or um, Friar Paul, he was a Jew. Um, I forget his original name. We'll call him Yankel. He was a Jew. But he became Pablo Christiani and he went to the king and he said to the king, um, this was, just so you know, I'm going to give you, this king was King James of Aragon. King James of Aragon. So, so he goes to the king and he says to the king, these Jews are no good. I, I was once one of them. You got to make them to convert to Christianity. And he says, you'll never believe what they say in the Bible or what they say in the Talmud about, about, about you guys. And all these, you know, these um, inflated claims, these bogus claims, um, trying to get the Jews in trouble. And by the way, it worked many times. Many of the expulsions of Jews getting kicked out of countries were because driven, unfortunately, by Jews who had converted out of the faith, who then were bent on taking down the Jewish people. Very troubling, very sad, very heartbreaking um, episodes in history. There's one debate that happened between this fellow, Pablo Christiani, Friar Paul, and uh, the Ramban, Nachmanides. Happened in the 1200s. Um, to be precise, it happened in July of 1263. July of 1263 is when this great debate happened. Basically, Ramban Nachmanides was told by the king, King James, of Aragon, you got to show up, you got to defend your people, the Jewish people, and um, otherwise, you, gotta, you all have to leave. So he was basically forced into this debate. And Nachmanides wrote down, he took a transcript of, of everything that happened in the debate, 
and he defended Judaism against the claims of Christianity. And essentially, I'm going to paraphrase, we have a bunch of really long texts that you can look at in, your, in, your, um, in, your, in the PDF, but I'm going to give you the short of it. He talks about, you know, from a Jewish perspective, questions about the whole idea of a divine um, birth, how God would somehow become implanted in, uh, in, in an embryo. It's, it's, it goes against the Jewish understanding of who and what God is, that God should somehow be born in the figure of a human being. By the way, I'm very well aware that there is Christian theology that explains these things. That's why I prefaced it by saying that to ask why Jews don't believe in Christianity it's almost like a mistaken question because there are different, why, why not? Because there are different beliefs. The way Jews understand, or Judaism understands God, is incompatible with the way that Christianity understands God. Um, also with regards to the Messiah, this one I want to read. I want to read this text about the coming, about the Messiah. Why don't Jews believe that Jesus was the Messiah? So here's a very, very simple approach of the Ramban. Let us, I'm going to read this. Let us speak of the Messiah too, as this is your wish, said Fray Paul. Will you believe then that he has come in the form of Jesus? Said I, this is written by Nachmanides, he's recording the debate. Said I, no, on the contrary, I believe and know that he has not come. And so far there has never been any other man. Uh, leaving aside Jesus, who has claimed to be the Messiah or has had the claim made for him, in whose Messiahship it is possible for me to believe. For the prophet says about the Messiah, he, his rule shall, sorry, yeah, his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river until the ends of the earth, Psalms. Jesus, however, never had any power, but in his lifetime he was fleeing from his enemies and hiding from them, and in the end he fell into their hands and could not save himself. So how could he save all Israel? Even after his death, he did not have any rule, for the power of Rome is not because of him. Even before they believed in Jesus, the city of Rome was ruling over most of the world, and after they adopted faith in him, right, as we know, the... Uh, the Roman Empire famously uh, took on uh, Christian beliefs. They lost many provinces, and now the worshipers of Muhammad have greater power than they. The prophet says that in the time of the Messiah, they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Also, it says, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Also, they shall beat their swords into plowshares. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. From Isaiah. Yet from the days of Jesus until now, the whole world has been full of violence and plundering. And the Christians are greater spillers of blood than, the, than all the rest of the peoples. And they are also practicers of adultery and incest. And how hard would it, it would be for you, my Lord King, and for your knights if they were not to learn war anymore. Oh, sorry. Learn war anymore. This is the dagger. This is like, boom. Ramban Ahmanides is speaking to the king, King James of Aragon. And he says, what, you believe the Messiah came? Look what it says in Scripture about the Messiah. You believe in the Scripture, right? You believe in the Old Testament. You believe in Isaiah. Okay, what does Isaiah say? Isaiah says that when Mashiach comes, when the Messiah comes, there won't be a war. Nations will not lift up sword against nations. They will beat their swords into plowshares. Essentially, they're going to convert their weapons into agricultural tools. So he turns to the king and says, You believe the Messiah came? Okay, so then, 
Why are you and your knights learning war and, and practicing war? Why is there so much bloodshed? Clearly then, the Messiah has not come. So again, these are just two points of the larger point, which is that Judaism is not the same as Christianity. Christianity is not the same as Judaism. Again, this is not intended to knock anyone's belief because Judaism does believe, like I said before, within Jewish ranks is the same as without. Just like within ranks, we need to respect each other. Also, outside of our ranks, our understanding is live and let live. Judaism was never has never been a proselytizing religion that says, you have to believe like us or else you don't count or else no heaven for you or else. Judah never said that, never looked for converts, never looked to convince people about the virtue or right, righteousness of Judaism. Rather, Judaism maintains that it has its beliefs. So Ramban Nachmanides, from a Jewish position, quoting Jewish scriptures, says that Christianity is incompatible. That makes sense from a Jewish perspective. Within Christianity, is Christianity compatible? I'm sure. Go ask a Christian. Go ask a, a Christian theologian how it makes sense. I'm sure they'll give you a good answer. The rabbi was answering from a Jewish perspective. From a Jewish perspective, Christian beliefs and Jesus are incompatible. So what's the, what, so what's the conclusion? Live and let live. <laughs> Jews will do what Jews do, and Christians will do what Christians do. No need to get all involved in, uh, you know, no, no need for cross-pollinization. That's it. In other words, live and let live. Okay, by the way, again, I'm, I'm very well aware that a Christian scholar would explain the idea of a virgin birth, and will explain the idea of Jesus being you know, the, the, the Trinity and explaining the idea of the first coming and second coming. Trust me, I'm well aware that there's a lot of scholarship. The question is, why don't Jews believe in Jesus? And the answer is because Judaism has its rules of theology and Christianity doesn't work with Jewish rules of theology. Within Christian rules of theology, I'm sure it works. Uh, it, it has to work. How else does it exist? But within Jewish rules, it doesn't exist. Does, does, is what I'm saying, does what I'm saying make sense? Yes? Thumbs up? Yes? Sort of? Okay, good. Wow, it's resounding. Okay, good. Take it easy. No. Um, okay, good. So that is a little bit about Judaism and Christianity. And again, remember that the, the premise of this course is that there's no, there's no question that's like, oh, no, you can't ask that question. Oh, that's like a very sensitive question. Sensitive question. It's a, qu a question is a question. There's nothing that's going to take down the structure. of. It's like, oh, you asked the question. You've exposed the loophole. Everything's coming down. Everything, every, there, there's a formula behind everything. Judaism is Judaism. Christianity is Christianity. Jews don't share the same beliefs. Now, there's a lot. I, I will say there's a lot of crossover. You know, core values, a lot of them do connect. But on a theological level, at the core, a lot of it is very, is very different. Going back to what I said before, live and let live. Ray, go ahead. Yeah. Um, all right. We say live and let live. However, um, the Muslims uh, go by the Quran, and it's not saying live and let live. They feel that they have a right to kill people that don't believe as they. I hear you. So I need to say two things. Number one, I am not an expert in the Quran. I'm not, I'm not an expert in Islam. I, can't, I cannot profess 
to tell you what Islam at its core teaches versus what people are reporting in the name of Islam. I don't, I don't know enough to be able to speak definitively on that topic. That's point number one. Point number two is, even if someone else's approach is not live and let live, that doesn't mean that we change our approach. In other words, our approach is everyone has a different path and the Jewish path is the Jewish path, but not everyone's Jewish and not everyone's meant to be Jewish necessarily. If someone wants to be Jewish, I should, I should add, it's fine. Some, everyone's welcome. If somebody wants to, wants to adopt the, the Jewish path and, and Torah and mitzvot, Somebody says, I, I don't want the seven Noahide laws. I want 613. You know, he wants to join the club? No problem. Um, but Judaism never has said that the only way to heaven, for example, is through Jewish practice. The only way to be a good person is through Jewish practice. On the contrary, Judaism has always taught that you can be a good person, you can be a mensch, and just be decent, be a decent human being. That's it. You don't have to, you don't have to do Shabbos. You don't have to do Rosh Hashanah. You don't have to do Passover. Be a good human being. Seven Noahide laws. Respect law, respect life, respect family, respect animals. Be a decent human being, and that's it. Now, what about others that, that don't respect life? Okay, well, that's not good. But I don't know that I'm comfortable painting billions of people with one brush, number one. Number two, I can't speak to the philosophy or theology of a religion without knowing it from the inside out. I just, I, I don't have that knowledge. And number three, even if someone does say that, it doesn't take away my belief that of live and let live. Somebody else doesn't believe that. Okay, that's, I feel bad for them. But that's not, that doesn't change the way I believe or the way I live my life. Okay, I hope that makes sense, the distinction. Now let's move on to, let's see what time we have. Ah, we have time for, I think, one more. Let's jump back into the text. Here we go. Let's take a look. Oh, this is a good one. Yeah, walk into any Publix or Kroger or, let me think of outside Georgia, or any, um, man, Albertsons or, I don't know, whatever. Any supermarket, at least in the United States, what are you going to find in the kosher section? You're going to find a lot of Manischewitz, a lot of Manischewitz on the shelf. You get your matzah, you get your uh, matzah ball soup mix, you get your gefilte fish, you get your egg noodles, right? And you get your yard site candles, your 24-hour candles. The question is, what's the deal with the yard site candles? Why do we light candles? Question number seven. Why do we light candles to commemorate our dearly departed? What's the connection? Text 14, let's read it inside. The context here is about the eve of Yom Kippur, but it's also about lighting candles for those who have passed on, and so we're going to connect it in just a moment. Let me read this inside. Rabbi Usher of Luniel wrote, Luniel wrote, on the eve of Yom Kippur, it is customary for all those who lost a parent to kindle a candle or torch near where they will pray in the synagogue to atone for the deceased. This honors God as it is written with lights. You shall honor God. And as the Midrash comments, God says, light a candle before me and I shall guard over your souls, which are called candles. That last line is the clue. I shall guard over your souls, which are called candles. Souls are called candles. Why? Let's understand this. 
Souls are called candles for a very magical reason. If you light a candle, you'll notice something that's very bizarre. Most things in our physical universe on planet Earth are pulled down by gravity. Most things tend to go down. You pour water, it's going down. A canned fire is unique. When you light fire, the flame is going up. It's pulling away. Now it's being held by the wick as long as there is a wick to hold on to it, but it's always lifting up. In fact, take a candle, turn it sideways, the flame is still going up. Turn it upside down and you're gonna burn yourself because the flame is going, you, you guessed that it's going up. Fire by nature defies the pull of gravity. Now I get it, it's still being pulled down ultimately as long as it's there, but fire by its nature wants to go up just like a soul by its nature wants to reconnect with its source above. Life, life, when I say life, what I mean is when the soul is in the body, even as it's being held by the, by the, um, by the wick of the body, the soul is always flickering up. The soul is always pulling, always wanting to connect up. Death marks the time when the, the flame leaves, leaves the wick, and it jumps off the wick, and the wick is left without a flame, and the flame rises back up to its source. So how do we commemorate the life and the legacy of a loved one, we light a candle. And what does it mean? We're reminded of the light, of the, the, the effect that the soul had on this earth while they were here. And we commit ourselves and recommit ourselves to living true to the legacy of those who have come before us and paved the way for us, our, dear, our dearly departed. So why do we light, in short, why do we light the yard site candle? To remind us of the soul, the flame soul, that lived connected to their wick, is now no longer here, but you and I can make them alive once again. Or say make alive. You and I can bring their light into the world by the actions that we take. So we light the candle to remind us of their spirit and to recommit to doing the good things that they taught us. I want to end with one point. And this is the question that I skipped before I'll do it outside. This was question five. Why are Jews still around after all this? After all the persecution, after all the attempts to get rid of the Jews, I could ask the question, how are we still around? But it's a why course. So why, why are we still here? How do we explain that? Sorry, why do we explain that? Or why are we still here? I'll give you a short answer. The short two answers. One answer is because God miraculously has... L- kept us around. It doesn't make any sense. There's never been a nation that has been targeted across the board, no matter pretty much what continent, whatever language, whatever time in history, there have been an expulsion or or hatred against Jews. It's just a constant of life. How are we still, why are we still here? Because God's making it happen. That's the, that's, that's the easy answer. It's kind of like a supernatural answer, but it's the easier answer. I think the harder answer, or the more, to me, the more compelling answer is, why are we still here? Because we keep on fighting. And when I say fighting, I mean we keep on, we keep on pushing. Moses, the, the Torah called, the Bible calls the Jewish people a stiff-necked people, a stubborn people. That could be a bad thing, but it could be a really good thing. And Jews are stubborn. If you've ever tried to deal with Jews, it's, um, if, you're, if you're in business and your customer base is Jews, God bless you, because you have to have a lot of patience. It's hard to deal with Jews. I, I love Jews. 
Trust me, I'm not backtracking on what I said before. I love Jews, but Jews are sometimes a little bit tricky to deal with. But it's a wonderful thing. But, but part of it is, it's the chutzpah. It's the chutzpah. It's like Jews will... And, and, it's, and it's served us well also throughout history. Why are we still around? Because we've been so audacious to say to the world, I, I know you want us gone, but we like it here and we're going to stay here and it doesn't matter what you say. And that's it. And we're here. And I think it's a beautiful thing. The world needs everybody. The world needs the Jews also. And we need to be here. There's a lot, there's a lot to still accomplish. Um, some have written, I've seen some, I've seen articles being written. Uh, it's so funny to me. I, I saw an article a few years ago where the premise of the article was, well, once Jews gave America comedy, the Jewish brand of comedy, like neurotic comedy, then we don't need Jews anymore because we've already infiltrated culture. So our effect has been, has been impact. We've already had the impact. So now we can go away because mission accomplished. And I'm thinking, is that all that we bring to the table? Humor, comedy? I think we have a few more tricks up our sleeve or a few more uh, things to talk about. But anyway, that aside, here's the point. We're still around. Why? Because we never left. People told us to go and we still hung around. Chutzpah, yeah, but, but that serves us well. Oh, and because and of God. God helps us out. Anyway, that's it for tonight. That's, sorry, that's it for the formal session of tonight. Like I said, um, the point of this class is to really create a platform for you to think about questions that are on your mind. No questions are off limits. And I'm looking at the chat right now. It looks kind of quiet, maybe because everyone was engaged in the process. I think as we are in the class and the content, as we go on, I really encourage you to hit up the chat or you can email me or text me. You know, feel free to do that also. But really, hit up the chat with questions. Yeah, Donna. I have a question that just follows exactly the sure. question you just said. So why is it that everyone always has wanted us gone? Oh, stay tuned. In a future class, that's coming up. I want to close out. I want to formally close out tonight's session because I know people have to go. It is 930. Uh, 9.35. So I want to thank everybody for being here. Next week, stay tuned. Let me tease next week. Next week, we are going to explore the Star of David. What's up with the Star of David? Six-pointed star. What's, why is that a Jewish symbol? We'll talk about the mikvah, the ritual bath. What's up with that? We'll talk, ooh, we'll talk about separate synagogue seating in traditional synagogues, the mechitzah, the Great Divide. Oh, that's going to be juicy. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about animal sacrifices. Read the Bible. The Leviticus. Animals. Barbaric. What's with the animal sacrifices? Like I told you at the beginning, we're not, we're not avoiding questions. Like, oh, I'm not going to speak about that because I don't have a good answer. Don't worry. We're going to speak about it. Maybe I'll let you judge if you like the answer, but we're not leaving any questions uncovered or, or unexplored. I want you, but, but listen, I'm, I'm, I'm being very, um, I'm going to be very forceful about this. I want to hear your questions. So Donna, your question, we will cover. It's one of the 50 that we have. Why do people hate us so much? Why does it feel like, you know, people always have an issue with the Jews? What's like, what's the deal with that? We'll get to that. I'm in one of the future lessons and one of the upcoming lessons, but really, Ask, think of your questions. Just start out with the word why, even if it doesn't fit the rest of it. Just, and, and email me, text me, or write in the chat box next week or right now, and I'll, I'll write it down for myself. 
But let's continue the dialogue. I really enjoyed our time together tonight. I thank you for being here with me. I hope you enjoyed it also. And uh, have a wonderful week. I, I, I look forward to seeing you next week. Hope you enjoyed it. All right. You, See you all. And by the way, I'm staying on. If anybody wants to ask questions, I'll stay, I'll stay on for a few minutes if you want. Thank you, Rabbi. Great class. Pleasure. Thank you, Adrian. Thank you. Questions? Nope. All right. That's also a good sign. Okay. We'll see. We'll see. Bye. Bye, Mariana. Good to see you. Thanks for being here. Yes. You have a question? Uh, this is Alan. Hey, Alan. Uh, in the interest of full disclosure, I am an errant Catholic, not a devoted Jew. So, but I don't have any agenda by reason of that. But... Going back to the question of miracles, yeah, uh, and I'm not saying that the words that were spoken by you or others are, are all inclusive of the subject, but the miracles that you discussed at least seem to be, as explained, acts of God convincing the Jews that what they were doing was legitimate or perhaps inducing them to do it and without being disrespectful, they didn't seem to have much effect on the other side of the issue. I mean, the people who uh, were, were conquered by Jews who were righteous by reason of the miracles weren't too happy about it. Correct. And You're right. Pharaoh at the head of the line, and perhaps whoever it was, Catholics don't know that, but behind the walls of Jericho. So it seems that I guess if you, asked, if you asked a Christian, they would think that a miracle was to convince someone who needed convincing, as opposed to reinforcing the views of someone who all already held that view. You're ask, you're, you're, I think you're asking a really great question and making a very, very strong point. And I agree 100% with you. The way we understand, based on today's discussion, the way, we, the way we're framing the purpose of a miracle is, I would say, less of, um, less of kind of convincing someone about something, but more of making a statement, a, a, a strong statement. God says, I am against slavery. God says, I am giving the land to the Jewish people. That's God's statement. But you're right. Now the question is, Who's listening? Is anyone listening? It's like that old cell phone commercial. Can you hear me now? Is anyone, is anyone out there? So, I, listen, you're being very generous because you said, you know, the Jews got the message. I don't even know if the Jews got the message. I think God has expectations and God makes statements and we are, we're catching up. Listen, God spoke about God was anti-slavery 3,300 years ago. As a society, as a world, we're still not there. We're still not fully, you know, equal playing field. And I'm not, by the way, I'm not, this is not a political statement, whatever. This is just a statement of reality. The world is, there, there, there is human suffering at the hands of, of people. People make other people suffer, whether it's a, on a large scale or on an individual scale. And that is absolutely against, against what, what, what God taught us. So I agree with you. I agree with you that it's a, it's a very long learning process. Um, and I will say this. I will say that because God is timeless, right? God's not limited to time like we are. God has all the time in the world, right? God has, God's waiting on us to get it. 
God made the statement, and now we're meant to get it. Um, hold on. Who is asking about... Uh, Alan, does that make sense, what I'm saying? Yes. Okay, good. But I agree with your premise. We should all, we should all be good listeners. Uh, we're all, it's a work in progress. Um, hold on. Who is Fire Tablet? I saw you ask the question about the, about the text. Who is... Who are you? Please identify. Oh, Catherine. Okay. Um, so I, I'm not sure. I just shared a PDF. Did you see the PDF of the, of the book on the chat? No. Okay. It's on the chat. The PDF I, I posted in the chat. If you didn't get it, so just email me and I'll, and I'll email you the PDF um, later on tonight. With pleasure. All right. Good. For sure. My pleasure. All right. Uh, we'll sign out now um, to be continued next week. Looking forward to it. Seven down. I have 43 more questions to go. Oh, Stan, you have a question? Oh, no, just saying goodbye? Okay. Um, have a good night. It's great to see everybody. Looking forward to continue the conversation. Lila Tov. Bye, everyone.